Uh, welcome to this gathering of the church, uh, where we uh, spend all of our days, all of our lives, our hours, uh, living as the body of Christ in this city. Uh, that's why we're called SOMA. SOMA isn't a cool acronym. Uh, sometimes people are trying to figure out what does the S and the O and the M and the A stand for. SOMA, thanks for the laugh, Seth. Uh, SOMA is just uh, the Greek word for body. Uh, and so our complete vision is that we would be each one of us playing a role, a vital role, as a member of Christ's body in this city, so that many would come to see and come to know and understand who the person of Jesus is and what all of his work and his death and his uh, resurrection means for us. Uh, and so that's what we're all about here. We're made up of uh, small communities called missional communities that are scattered across the west side of uh, L.A., uh, many here mostly in Culver City. Uh, and if you want to learn more about how to do uh, life and become a disciple and follow Jesus through these communities, that's the primary way that we do all of that stuff in this church. Uh, just come and talk to me afterwards or talk to, to Trip, who will be speaking later, or any of these fine uh, people sitting up here playing their instruments. There will be people that will know how to get connected to those things uh, beyond the little connect table out there. Uh, I wanted to give just sort of a little uh, vision mint, uh, that's what I like to call them, uh, about the gospel actually spreading and going out into the world. Uh, this last week, uh, I was in Oklahoma, of all places. Uh, it's a great place. Yeah, there's some Oklahoma. Yes, that's right, Evie. Uh, I was on, I was in this town called Tahlequah, uh, which, uh, is a really great name. Uh, I was about 15 miles past this town on a river. Uh, and we were floating the river every day, me, uh, and some leaders and about 60 students. Uh, and at that, I had the chance to speak about Jesus and talk with students and adults about the gospel for, uh, four days. Uh, just to sort of remind us that the gospel does bring people from death to life. Uh, last Wednesday, I was able to baptize four people. It was amazing. One of them was an adult leader who just like never kind of understood uh, the radical nature of the gospel, uh, as well as three students that had never been baptized before. So that's pretty cool, right? Yay, people are baptized. Uh, and, the, and that's what's crazy about the gospel is these people have been surrounded by uh, the church. Like, there's a church on every corner. Uh, there's like four churches on some corners. Uh, and yet, they had never really heard the, the simple implications of Christ's love for them, a radical new identity in Christ. All the stuff that we talk about here all the time, they'd actually never heard before. Uh, and so it was really awesome to see people come to faith, see others say, I want to move to Indonesia for the rest of my life and like tell people about the gospel. So, so really cool and rewarding uh, for me. But that's also uh, rewarding for all of us because that's all of our work together. I just want to remind us of that cool truth. Uh, and that's how the gospel continues to go out, uh, not just around the world, but also in this city. And it's been the passion and the prayer of this body to see more and more churches planted in the city from the very beginning of this church starting. Uh, so seven, eight years ago, when Tripp and Jessica moved here and began meeting with many of you uh, to start this church, the hope wasn't just to see one church in Culver City, but to see many churches so that Tons of people could come to see and know the truth that the students got to hear this last week. Uh, and so the church has been setting aside money actually since then uh, for one day to help uh, support a church plant in the city. Uh, and about two years ago, uh, Josh Hames here 
came a knocking and came a gathering. Uh, all of these lovely people from Mississippi and Oklahoma, yeah, uh, to come with this vision of seeing another church like ours planted uh, in Los Angeles. And uh, over the years, uh, God has clarified that it would be in Venice. And so our uh, shared hope and prayer would be to see an expression of the church there where all of these people in Venice who don't have access to the body of Jesus, the family of Jesus, would be welcomed in as sons and daughters of God. Uh, They've been in a long series of preparing and learning and getting settled in the city. Right now, the phase is actually fundraising phase. And so, uh, and it's not, just to clarify, it's not uh, Daniel and Josh are in their fundraising phase. Uh, We are in the fundraising phase. Uh, We as a body are in the fundraising phase to see the financial resources required to see a new church started. And so they're doing a lot of the work of talking to tons of people all over America and the world. Have you asked someone across the globe yet? That's good. See, all over the world. Uh, which is great. Uh, but we just wanted to take some time this morning uh, to explain what our church is going to be contributing from all of this money that we've been saving and from our monthly budget. And so we're going to be giving this new church plant uh, $5,000 just on the onset. Uh, and this is all, even people that aren't even part of the church have given towards that fund, like people who have been here for a season and moved away. I think that's quite the mystery and a phenomenal thing. So we're going to be doing that as well as giving them each month. Uh, I have it written down because I don't memorize. 5,000 was an easy number to remember. Uh, so we'll be giving them $725 a month and then it'll taper down over five years. So then 570, then 415, then 350, then 320. Uh, we wanted to, and you're like, man, that is so random. These numbers are so weird. Uh, we wanted to start with a lot uh, because that's when most of the expenses and the needs are, and then see it tapered off. So we'd rather, instead of it like being even the whole time, we wanted to start with a, a huge blessing. And so you might be wondering, like, what does that mean for me? That actually means that every time you're giving to our body, you're extending the mission not just of this church, but another church uh, in this city. Uh, you already, every time you give financially to this church, uh, contribute to church plant in San Francisco, uh, in... Uh, Arizona, and I'm forgetting a few others. That's pretty much it, right? Uh, Crenshaw, thank you so much. Uh, Crenshaw here in LA. And so now, every time you give, you also, a a big sizable portion, this was by far the most we give each month, uh, will now be going to uh, this church in Venice. Uh, And the other thing I just challenge you is you look at your own resources, your own financial resources is to think first, like, am I giving and contributing to the mission of this church that I belong in so that we can continue to, to be uh, saints in this city together and bound together and working together? Uh, and then also, how can you give so much even more of your financial resources to seeing the gospel continue to spread? Uh, you can make all sorts of investments in your life. Often the investments we choose uh, is Chipotle and Netflix, and those are the investments we try to make. Uh, maybe that's not you. Maybe that's just me. Uh, but I just want to challenge you for, at whatever level to begin contributing and making an invis- investment in the kingdom of God. Because in the end of the day, uh, none of these things and these possessions that we have will go with us, 
or uh, be that valuable here on earth after we're gone. Yet the lasting investments of the kingdom of God are eternal, which is pretty phenomenal. And so uh, I just want to, here, I have one more announcement I just realized. Uh, it's totally off topic. And then I'm going to pray uh, for this Venice church to get all the resources needed and for God to uh, lead us. This random announcement, I'm sorry, I should have said this first. It's not random, it's important. Uh, This Saturday, this coming Saturday, is an opportunity for us to actually get our hands and feet dirty building. Is that right, Derek? This Saturday. Uh, Habitat, the Habitat for Humanity house that we've been talking and praying about and giving towards for a long time. This Saturday is our first chance to start building uh, as a body. And so we need three additional people. A lot of you have already signed up, but we need three new people to, you know, grab a hammer, uh, put your arm to the plow, that sort of stuff. Uh, literally be the body of Christ in this city. Uh, and so talk to Derek. Derek, wave your hand. There he is. He's the one to talk to about finding out all the details about getting there. Uh, let me pray for, for the gospel to continue to grow and specifically for Venice. Jesus, we thank you. Uh, we thank you that the, that the gospel has come to us, that this message of, of your life, your death, your resurrection... Uh, making all things new, raising us from death to life, defeating sin, defeating evil, putting every power in this world underneath your feet. We're thankful that that message has come to us, that your spirit uh, cut us to the heart, and we experience repentance and faith, and we even now get to walk in joy through all the trials of this world. And we just pray for many, many people uh, to hear that good news, to come to know you, to be adopted sons and daughters. We pray for your kingdom in this city to have many, many new citizens. Uh, We want so many new citizens of your kingdom here. Uh, And so we pray for that. We pray, too, that you would uh, financially, like, give uh, and create uh, all every resource needed and required for, for the the ways that you've called us to walk in obedience. We also pray uh, that you would just lead us and continue to lead us in wisdom as we uh, walk in this whole journey together of of seeing a whole new church started. Uh, We thank you, too, for the sorrow that that often invokes of seeing people we loved uh, and we've done life with do life somewhere else, even if it's just a few miles down the road. We thank you that that is sorrow because of the family that you've knit together here. Uh, And we even pray longingly hoping for uh, that coming city, that coming garden city uh, where we get to worship with all the saints that have ever known you and that we get to gather around together and just say how worthy you are as a lamb and as the lion. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Some of you are off of your cake coma from last night. I don't know. I think I might have had more than the rest of you, but I, I only tried like 11 or 12 different cakes, but Leanne was like keeping up with me. She was like trying to, every time I went by, she was like, have you tried this one? I'm like, no, did you get this one? Um, but anyway, uh, good morning. Let me uh, begin this morning. I want to read from the book of Psalms. We've been studying the book of Psalms and talking about just the liturgy of what do we do as a church, how, do, how does this, this time affect how we live. So I want to begin by reading a psalm of assurance from Psalm 91. If you have your Bible, you can open there, um, or you can look on the screen. It will be up there as well. So Psalm 91 says this, 
He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snares of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shelter and a buckler. You will not fear in the terror of the night, nor the arrows that fly by the day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destructions that waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and on the adler, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him, I will protect him, because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him, I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. These are the words of the Lord to his people. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we thank you um, that you have sent Jesus to make these things true. That you have sent your Son to die for us, and not just die, but to rise again and to defeat death so that we can be with you and that we can be assured of your love and of your truth and that you are the one that rescues us and calls us by name. Father, we thank you that you are above us and that you, um, that you love us so deeply. Father, I pray as we look at your word today, that you would remind us of your goodness, that you would remind us of your truth, and that your spirit would speak to our hearts, and that you would convict us of areas that we are not believing your truths, and that we would walk in your ways all throughout the week. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know that we started a new series that we're calling Gathered and Scattered, um, where we've been looking at the liturgy of the church through the lens Uh, of the book of Psalms, and we've been talking about what we do here on Sunday morning when we're gathered and how that trains us to walk as a life of a disciple throughout the week as we're scattered around. So you hear every week, um, even prior to this, that we talk about um, really our scattered life, how we're structured as a family, uh, as a church family, what we call around missional communities, where, where the people actually live the life of the disciple in a smaller community, um, where we reorient our lives around this Trinitarian understanding of a family of missionary servants, so that the gospel might be declared to a specific people in a, in a specific place. And that although we've spent a lot of time talking about that over the past years, and we're going to continue to talk about that because we really believe that's where disciples are made um, as, we, as we are scattered throughout our missional communities, it doesn't mean that this time on Sunday 
isn't just as important. This isn't just a time to come like see some friends that you didn't get to see throughout the week or sing some songs or hopefully hear a message that you kind of like or didn't like or whatever. Um, rather, at the gathering, what we're doing here is we're actually helping each other um, to get our hearts where they actually need to be so that we can then engage in life in our missional communities. This time is a, is a training time to help us refocus our hearts and our minds on really a vertical life. That as we gather and as we scatter from this place, we would, we would walk out really knowing that we are loved by God and that we walk out loving other people. And we want, we want you to leave knowing that you're loved, that you're accepted by Jesus. And that you would, you would understand those things, that you would believe those things, and you would walk out and saying, I am so in love with Jesus that I'm willing to do anything Jesus wants me to do now in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because anytime you try to do it on your own, it's not going to work. And so basically, each time that, we, that we're gathered, we're basically retraining each other in vertical worship. We're equipping each other to go back out and live a life of gospel purpose as the church. Brad said this earlier, but this is not the church. What we're doing right now is not the church. Please don't discard that. Don't just hear that every week and say that's just semantics. This is something that you need to hear and understand. What we're doing right now is not the church. The church is not a gathering. It's not a building. The church is a people. The Bible is very clear on that, that the church is a people. Any pastor around the world will tell you that. Just the way that we function often doesn't reflect that. But as as God's people, we come together to gather as his church to be equipped in the everyday so that when we scatter from here, we know how to actually vertically worship God in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and in our homes. That we would worship Jesus like we're trained to do during this time. And so this gathering is really an important time for us as his people, as his church. And it's really one of the main tools that we have in our culture for casting a net for followers of Jesus to actually come in and then be discipled and to be equipped and to be put back into mission and built back into God's purpose. And so, so believe that this is actually important as well, even though we talk about the other often. That's why we're kind of doing this series too so that you would know what we're talking about and what we're doing here and what we're training you in so that you would be aware of those things and that you would not just learn them here but that you would put them back in place all throughout the week. I think sometimes we kind of get into this idea where nowhere else in life do we come to something for once a week and say, I think we're good or that's something that defines me. Like you never said like, oh, did you eat this week? Like, yeah, you know what? I had a really good meal on Sunday. Like, the appetizer was really great. The main was a little bit dry, but the dessert was like, oh, that, like, spice cake was just, like, tearing me up. It was so good. And then they had Italian cream cake. Oh, that was good. <laughs> that thing. Right? If, and then you say, you know what? And then, like, I'm good for the rest of the week. I don't have to eat anymore. Like, no, you would say, like, that person's unhealthy. We'd wonder how long before they starve to death. Yet, when it comes to Christianity and the church, this is how we actually act often, which really demonstrates what we think about the church, which is why we often say that if we're actually going to live the life 
of a disciple of Jesus, you need to be involved in all of these things. We need a gathered vehicle so that we can be trained, and then we need scattered vehicles in our, in our missional communities, in our DNA groups, where we're going to actually live the life of the church. It's that we're going to be the church the way that the Bible actually defines it. We need to be fully engaged in all of these things. So now during this series, what we've been doing is we've been talking about kind of the things and the reasons why we do the things each week during this time. Because the reality is that where our eyes are focused will actually change how we live. If our eyes are focused just on ourselves or on our own circumstances, we're never going to see anyone else. And we're going to kind of live like this often, kind of keeping everything at arm's bay. But if our eyes are focused on Jesus, we will then go from this to we'll do this. And we'll start doing this and we'll see other people the way he sees them and we'll see the things that he sees are valuable, valuable. And so two weeks ago, Brad began the series and he talked about this call to worship as we gather. That we're, that as we call to worship, we're, we're being reminded that we're a part of a larger story. That this story where, where Jesus is actually the hero. That this story is actually about him and that we're invited into this story to see Jesus and to hold Jesus as the most valuable thing. By the way, that is what worship is. It's defining value. That's what worship means. Placing worth on something or someone. And, and we're constantly doing that, moment by moment in life. We're always saying, this is valuable. This is worth giving my time to. This is worth giving my money to. And we're constantly making that decision, what we worship every day, all and on. And so when we start and we come together, we want to, st- we want to start by saying, let's call you back in to worship what is actually valuable. Let's start there and then continue to do that together during this time that we would look at Jesus together, we would see how valuable he is, and that we would see that he's actually worth worshiping. Which really brings us to what Jared talked about last week, this idea of confession. That as we're called to worship again, that we're actually called to worship Jesus again, we confess our, really, our deep need for Jesus. We confess our misguided worship that, that we often, throughout the week and throughout even this time when we're gathered here, we looked at something else to worship. And so confession then becomes not a shameful thing, but it's another way to actually say, look at Jesus. Look how gracious he is. Look how good he is. Look how much more his sacrifice is worth by, by the things that I see that I was actually worshiping that he's forgiven me for. And as I, I thought this other thing was valuable, but I was wrong. Jesus is much more valuable. And so we confess our need of him. And so we, we start with this idea of we need to see Jesus, we confess our need of him. And then I want, what I want to talk about today, I want to kind of focus most of our time on today, is, is really, which brings us to this idea of assurance. Because I know this is true of me, and my guess is it's true of you, that often we really don't actually believe that God loves us. We doubt that he loves us. I think especially after sometimes we actually are confronted with our sin and we need to confess things. We, we doubt that he loves us. I think it's very similar to what Adam and Eve did in the garden. We fall into this trap of believing a lie that God is not for us. 
He can't really love me that much. I need to hide in shame. And we doubt his love. We doubt his forgiveness. And we doubt that this reality that he loves us is almost too good to be true. And so as we come together, we need to actually be reminded, be assured that his love for us is actually true. He does actually love you and me. He loves you. Yeah. Amen. Like somebody should say amen about that for sure. Like it's crazy. God loves you and me regardless of any of our junk. I think a big problem is that that for many people, when we think about love, the biggest determining factor when we think about love actually comes to our feelings. And feelings are usually the chief measurement of love in our world and in our minds. I don't feel loved right now. You didn't act in this way or say something in this way. I don't like the way that you're being towards me. It doesn't feel right to me. You must not love me. And we live in this this unhealthy state of looking in every area of life to find a feeling of love. I think it's why in many ways in our country and our city is is very, very thin-skinned. It's it's easily offended. We're, We're easily provoked. We live in this world of such political correctness that anything other than what we think or see for ourselves, we take it this idea of tolerance and we make it an offense against others. We make it an offense against us because it doesn't make me feel good when someone says something or does something different than what I think. It's unloving towards me. Josh and I were digging this week at, at my house. I have some calluses on my hands. My finger still hurts from it. Um, we were digging at my house, the driveway, and we were talking about this idea where now every tweet, every post, every sentence, every look, every glance, every act, or it gets overanalyzed. And it, it's, it be, is, a possi- is this a possible offense against you? Is this a possible offense against someone? I want to say we're, we're, we're most likely a nation of victims. We often live with a victim mentality. We're whiners and we're powders to a large degree. If someone says something negative about us, no matter how constructive it may be, we analyze and say, you know what, they could have said that better. They could have said it in a way that, that I would have received it a little bit more. And so we slump into this self-justifying woundness. Or in our culture, we just file a harassment suit. Right? Like, we think about this idea. Just think about how you approach a conversation with people often. Sometimes, if someone's feelings are vulnerable, and they might be hurt by a certain thing that you need to say to them, or a certain action, we just kind of hold back, and we kind of say, you know, we kind of give ourselves, this is wise counsel, but it's probably not the loving thing to do right now. I'm not saying that we need to just blast people or be insensitive or, or not think about those things. But I want to say we can easily be held hostage by people's sensitivity. Because good and loving actions are, also, are often going to be rejected. Because the bottom line of love is not actually truth and principle or what's even best for them. But how will they feel? How will they feel? 
Feelings rule the definition of love in our minds and our culture. And what happens when that takes place is we either hold back what we know is actually loving, or we actually would say, I think we use this other thing, we use this worldview to communicate that we're going to feel really bad if you do or say that thing to us. And so unknowingly or knowingly, we protect ourselves from the truth, and we protect ourselves from good things that don't actually feel good to us. What's happened is when we do that is we take this this human-made, flawed definition of feeling love and then we lump that on God. And we say, God must not love us. He must not be for us because I don't feel it right now. And we begin to doubt God's love. As I was thinking about this, I thought about a whole bunch of ways, but I thought it would probably be better for me just to ask you a question. As you think about this, what are some ways that you think our definition of love through feelings or or whatever the culture may say about it plays into our view of God? What are some ways you think that plays in? The way we define love, and we lump that onto God. How How does that play into our view of God? If you're new with us, you do get to answer when I ask your question. I think often, I don't know how we maybe struggle to love each other and others is like, we'll, we'll love each other, but if we lay each other down, like, we still love you, but we're like, dis- like disappointed. Like, it's like somewhat conditional, but like, I know that you still love me, but it's still like, oh, I know you're mad at me, and like, I feel bad about that. And I think when I think about God, like, when I sin uh, in some way that I'm struggling with a lot. Like, I know he loves me, but I'm also, I think, internally feeling, like, sad or guilty. And, like, there's a mix of, like, sin does break our hearts, but also, like, feeling maybe that God is, like, oh, come on, Jeff. Or, like, a, a dad that's, like, okay. Like, you know, instead of, like, an unconditional father, you're just, like, unconditionally loved, like, by our father. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's kind of a nuance, but... Yeah, we have this mixed bag of who he is, right? Like he's, he's, he loves us, but he's still kind of mostly disappointed. Yeah. Yeah, if I can just do a few more things that are what God likes, he's going to love me even more. That's not true. God already loves you as much as he already can. And yet we tend to walk in our lives trying to do X, Y, and Z to like prove ourselves to God over and over and over again when God is saying, no, I already love you. Yeah, good. Yeah, if I don't like my circumstances or it doesn't seem like something that I feel like I want to be in, he must be judging me or like he doesn't really love me or, yeah, all those pieces come into play often, I think. I don't feel close. He must not be close. Yeah, good. What else? Mm. Yeah, he didn't meet all my needs. My needs, right? The things that I wanted. He must not love me. 
Yeah, I think we actually play that into when we come to gather, too, in, in this worship service. Like, I didn't meet all my needs. I wasn't feeling it today. The songs were just kind of, uh, the preaching was, uh, you know, like, it doesn't, I don't feel it, right? Yeah, I think that's good. Yeah, Macy. I think a lot of times in our human relationships, we settle for the Yeah, we have this very surfacey relationship with God oftentimes. Yeah, good. Where we don't really like, ah, he doesn't love me. We, he, I know he loves me, but like we're just kind of like, kind of pal-ish. Yeah, good. What else? Yeah, we often believe what other people say above what God says about us. Yeah, good, Derek. It's good. Yeah. not lollipops all the time yeah yeah god 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 loves us he, he made a choice actually to love us i right? love is a choice but there are there's feelings that go with that as well yeah good i was just gonna say i think there's like the our culture the way we do feedback is normally uh we kind of avoid it that's some of what you're saying before but because if we crit- critique somebody's work that they like really care about then we must not care about them Um, And I think it might be different in different fields or whatnot. Uh, But then we take that, I think, with God to where he comes and he says, actually, there's this big part of your life that does, like, need to change, like, should be changed. There's sin that should be confessed. There are desires that need to be put down. It's like, oh, then he must not love me. Yeah. This whole idea of obedience often doesn't feel right to us. Yeah, when God confronts us with those things, or we see them, we I think sometimes what we either do is so like, we don't, I don't God doesn't really love me, or I'm just going to throw out His words. And so many areas of life of His of our lives, like that, must not be true. I want to remind you that like Jesus is offended by our sin. 
He's in direct opposition to us worshiping something other than Him. And if it doesn't feel good to us when we're told to do something or that He asks us to walk in, in our ways, what we do is we just scream and we cry just like little kids rather than actually walking in obedience to His love and what He calls us to do. Yeah, good. Somebody else said something over here. Matt? Yeah, if you just love me, you just let me be. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I think we, with what Matt was saying, like, we have this cultural idea that you are enough, like that's sort of the millennial speak to say to everybody, like, you are enough as you are, but, like, Jesus is missing. So, like, we say that as Christians, too, but because we know we've been covered by Jesus and, like, the sacrifice has been made on our behalf, but culturally, people want to believe that as is, and so there's this gap of, like, but we aren't without Jesus, like, and, but it's offensive to somebody to say that, and so, like, we just kind of sit there and say, no, you are good enough, like, you're not happy in that relationship, like, get out of it, you're enough as you are, you don't need to be what they need, you mm-hmm. need to be what you, makes you happy, and kind of this idea, but, so it's similar concepts in some ways, but without Jesus, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, for sure. Last one. I'm just going to say, like, I think oftentimes the loving relationship we try to have with God it feels like puppy love at first mm. because someone's trying to convince you this amazing thing that's true that God just loves you so much, he died for you, and all these amazing things. And that's true. And we're human. We have to walk in it, and we doubt, and we struggle, and there's faith that you have to wrestle with. And there's promises in the scriptures that don't come true on the timeline that you would think they would. Mm. Yet you have to wrestle on the other side of the scale with this love that's being said that is there. And the thing is, like, the Christian life is wrestling with how can this be true if I'm feeling X today, or this is happening in my life. And God, you said you'd be there for me. You said you'd provide. You talked about the birds in the fields. You talked about, I'm your strong tower, and no ruin will come near your tent. We see people demolished in the church constantly. Mm. And so I think there's like, I think it's fine to be a new Christian and be like, man, love's great. But I think you've been in the ranks for years. You get to a point where you're like, where's the realness here? And I think, I think the scriptures... God is bigger than that, and there's and He's more than more than up to the task of being worthy of the more senior Christian who's kind of past the like puppy love phase. But I think oftentimes people don't stay around long enough to get there and to wrestle. If you do anything through a loving relationship, you know you wrestle through the ugly things and you build the relationship together. So I think like that even more so today in our how we define love as society like we're not even spending the time to fight to get to that point mm. you get past initial infatuation into like honesty intimacy vulnerability all those things 
Yeah, for sure, for sure. We could spend a lot of time continuing to talk about these reasons. Uh, John Piper says this, he says, The most fundamental fight of the Christian life is to keep on being satisfied with God. When you look up, to keep on feeling love for the glory of his name, and when you look forward, to keep on feeling hope in the greatness of his promise. It's a fundamental fight that we have in this this, this really believing in the relationship of believing that he actually truly loves us and walking in those things when things around us don't actually seem to be that way or the culture around us tells us that's not love. These are all reasons why you guys have talked about it and there's many more of why assurance is so important for us to be reminded of and to be trained of during this time so that we would move past just this feeling into actually a life defined by truth and that we would remember his love and that we'd remind each other of that when, when, when we're not actually believing that he actually loves us. Because as followers of Jesus, I want to say it's not good to live with humanity's definition of God's love. We get to have a different perspective and a different definition of love. We don't have to be, we don't need to be thin-skinned or vulnerable. You, if you are, have been called by God, you've been chosen by God. You are loved by God. You are forgiven by God. You are accepted by God. You are indwelt by God. You are guided by God. You are protected by God. You are strengthened by God. God is more important than anyone else in the universe. And he loves you and me. He loves his kids. You don't have to feel vulnerable or insecure. You don't have to be self-justifying or self-defensive or self-pitying. God loves you and me. It's crazy. It's crazy. James 1.19 says this, We can be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why is that? Why can we be those things? Because we're coming from a place of rest in God's love. When we get to, to 1 Corinthians 4, it says, We get to live as this. This way we get to live when we live out of love. He said, When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to smooth. The idea is that you and I get to allow God's word and what he says in the Bible to shape our worldview, to shape our understanding of love, not the other way around. We get to live with God's opinion held as the highest value and that we get to live in the truth of what Psalm 91 is actually saying here. If you go back to Psalm 91 in verse 5, it says, You will not fear in the terror of the night, nor the arrows that fly by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at the noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousands at your right hand, but it will not come near to you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Why? Verse 9. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. Really what assurance is, is reminding one another's hearts, minds, and souls what's actually true about God. What He's promised 
you and me. What is actually the real reality of life? Not what we can see or not what we can feel about it. In Hebrews chapter 10, if you want to turn over to Hebrews chapter 10, there's this, this foundation for um, we have um, how, we, how we get to love this way and how we get to have the assurance of God's love for us. And in the first part of Hebrews chapter 10, um, the writer goes on and talks a lot about Jesus' sacrifice, that it was once and for all, and that there's no other sacrifices made prior to this point or after the cross that were sufficient. And in verse 11, uh, Hebrews 10, 11, it says this, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made as footstools for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If you're part of the church, if you're part of the family of God, you are in that verse. You are those that are being sanctified. You are those that are walking in this journey, learning to live and love Jesus the way he loves us. Hebrews is telling us that Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection are the climax of the story. That Jesus' sacrifice, he he gave up his glory so that we might once again get to reflect his glory. It's the idea that that the most glorious one became inglorious so that we might share in his glory. The good news is that Jesus was rejected so that we could actually hear the voice of God, the voice of the most valuable opinion in the entire universe, affirm us as sons and daughters that we get to now hear our dad say, I love you. I accept you. I call you into my family. What's amazing is you are talking about butterflies and lollipops. This is from Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. This is how God sees you and me as children. He says, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The Living Bible translates it this way. I love it the way it says this. Is that a joyous choir I hear? No, it's the Lord himself exalting over you in a happy song. God is singing over you. He's delighted with you. He breaks out in song with you when he thinks about you. God takes great pleasure in his children. He's not disinterested in your life. He's in the business of blessing and loving you. God doesn't wake up one morning and say, I don't love you anymore. I'm out of here. You didn't do what I wanted you to do. You didn't say what I wanted you to say. You didn't walk in the ways I wanted you to walk, so I'm gone. God never does that. God is gracious. He's a giver, and he gives, and he gives, and he gives, and he never takes. He just gives and gives and gives. And he gives people what they do not deserve. And what we don't deserve is his love. That there's this subtle twist that we often believe that God only gives us what we do deserve. And so when we walk in that, we doubt his love for us. And we doubt that he's actually for us. Because we actually believe he's going to give us what we truly deserve, what we know we deserve. 
which is why we need to be assuring one another and reminding each other of truth. It's why Hebrews really builds from this. And in verse 19, it builds from that foundation of Jesus as the final sacrifice. And it says this. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus and by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and with our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Hebrews is saying, look at the truths of God. Look at those things over your feelings, over the things that are going on around us. Refocus your eyes on Jesus. Hebrews is saying we have a massive foundation for your salvation and the death of the Son of God. And we have an advocate in heaven now that is more powerful and more compelling than any accuser on earth, including yourself. And he's saying, hold on to that love. Don't let other things pull you or pull your eyes off of that truth. In verse 24 and verse 25, Hebrews talks about this idea of gathering scattered. In 24, he says, Think of ways, remind each other that when you're living life, think of ways, remind each other of God's love. When you're scattered around, when you're living life, think of, think of as many ways as possible to remind each other and to assure each other about who God is. And then in verse 25, he says, When you get together, remind each other. Make sure you get together, and when you do it, remind each other of God's love. Gather as God's people. We need to be reminded. We need to be assured of God's love. God's love for us is all-encompassing. And we need to be ensuring each other of God's love at all times. All throughout the week and as we gather on Sunday. Because we are so quick to take our eyes off of Jesus. We're so quick to forget. We're so quick to think and to not trust that His love is actually good for us. We actually need to see the value and the importance of of every opportunity throughout the week to be reminded of God's love. If you're going to walk the life of a disciple, if you're going to walk the ways that God has called you to live, you're going to have to live with your life defined by his love. And we're going to need to be reminded. We need to find ways to, to remind each other that if you look through Psalms, Many psalms of assurance, you'll see this tension that we've been talking about this morning of of looking at the circumstances around us and not really feeling good about them. But then turning and saying, yet I know you love me. You are my refuge. You are my comfort, not these other things. In you will I trust. I think it's the same thing that Jesus was experiencing in his humanity as he was in the garden. He was looking at what was before him, knowing what was coming, and he was saying, if you can take this away, please do it. But yet, I will follow you because I know you are loving and I know this is good. 
In verse 34 of Hebrews, it discusses this confidence to walk in this way of life. Um, And it says this, You accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. I'm going to wrap this up. But you see, the power to walk joyfully and sacrificially in the path of love is knowing that you actually have a better possession beyond the grave. That the truth is that, that if you don't live with this great confidence, then you're going to continually be thinking how much you're losing each time you give something up. Or each time something doesn't go the way that you want it to. Or each time you have to sacrifice something. And you'll be driven back and forth on this feeling of love and out of love. But if life is just a brief preparation for eternal joy and a better possession, an abiding one that is already confirmed and is already guaranteed, then we're people that get to know that that this one life that we live and only the things that we do for Christ actually matter. And when we believe that and we actually get to walk in in that, you get to walk freely in your life and to risk your love and your property, and anything you might own, and anything that is a part of your, your possessions, to actually bring love, the love of God, into this planet that needs it so much. We're free people to now look around, not to look for comfort, or ease, or security in the things of life. We're free to listen to criticism, and to take an account, and not be wounded, or walk in self-pity. We're free to not be easily offended anymore. Or to waver from one opinion to the next opinion to the next opinion based on how we're feeling. We're people who get to be confident in God's love and to walk boldly and joyfully in his salvation. To really know, as Romans 8 says, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy compared to the glory that is going to be revealed in us. You want to know someone who's actually walking the life that they're assured of God's love? You're going to see the confidence in the gospel and the joy that overflows in their life because of that. There's a visible difference. This idea of love is is not just an academic knowledge of the truth of God's love. It's a deep, heartfelt confidence and a reality in the truths that affect every area of life from there. And when we come together to gather, and when we're apart, we need to be training each other, reminding each other of these things, assuring each other of the truths of God's love, so that we would walk in those truths, so that we would worship Him rather than anything else that we would want to worship in life. And can I say, that is what our city needs. It's what our country needs. We don't need some tolerance or inclusion. We need to actually... Be assured of the love of Jesus, that he actually loves others and he includes them in his sacrificial love on the cross. That's the inclusion that we need in this this country and in this world. And the good news is that those of us, you and I, who have received that love, get to now walk boldly in that love. We get to now remind each other of that love. And we get to be trained in that love during this time so that we would be living examples of humans who actually view God and view Jesus as the most valuable thing on this planet and in the entire universe. 
Because he is. And that person loves you and me. He loves you. I want to remind you of that today. I want to remind you that his truths are actually reality. That what he says in his words are actually true. You can bank your life on it. And you get to live in those things. And the truth of the gospel that Jesus came and that he died and that he rose again, that he defeated death, you get to now walk joyfully in knowing that you have a new future and you have a purpose now on this planet until that future comes. So, Father, we thank you that you so deeply love us and that you so deeply care for us. Father, I pray that we would be people that not only are reminded of those things in our own lives, but that we'd be people that continually tell others of that. That we would walk out this gospel purpose in our lives of reminding others of the truths of Jesus. That we would no longer be defined by by the things that we feel, but that we would feel and know and understand the depths and truths of your love that we would fight for those things, that we, would, that we would walk deeply into relationship with you, that we wouldn't just stay at a surf le- surface level knowing those things in our head, but that we would truly, deeply understand them and be defined by them, and that we would wrestle through the hard pieces of life that, that we see around us, but yet come back to you and say, God, I know you are for me. I know you love me. I know that you that you call me to yourself. Father, I thank you that we get to walk as your sons and as your daughters, and that we get to hear you as a good dad say that you love us. Father, I pray that you would continue to have us worship you this morning as we gather, and as we go throughout the week, that you would continue to move and to help point our eyes vertically to see you and not the other things around us, that we would not look at the water and sink into it, but that we would walk along the water with our eyes focused on you. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.